0: Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Pretend World's Real People. As always, I'm Tyler, and I have a quick pop quiz for you. Uh, Who has two thumbs and just received a jury summons? (laughs) This guy. Oh, my God. Uh, You know what? I'm picked every single time. I get one of these every year and a half. At this point, it's just a part of my life. Uh, I I feel like I'm slowly becoming Stanley from The Office, though, when it comes to that, because it's not that bad. However, I did plan a vacation around that time, so... It sucks. I have to kind of like take a break from vacation, zip over to my uh, my city, do it, and then hopefully not get picked. <laughs> uh, outside of that, I am currently in Phoenix recording a commercial, so I have a day off. I'm uh, just getting ready to shoot. Actually, I haven't started yet, and I'm recording this intro in a very cool hotel room with a popsicle, just enjoying the AC. I hope everybody else is staying nice and cool out there. Nothing too crazy to, uh, to talk about for the last week. Honestly, I've been sending in more industrial auditions than ever and uh, just seeing if one of those stick, you know, see what happens. Oh, man. Uh, sorry, I'm, <laughs> I'm still thinking about the Jerry Summers. Uh, in other news, though, we are closing in on 100 episodes, so I have a few more episodes left. I will let you know when the 100th is coming up and uh, try to celebrate, maybe do a live stream or something. I haven't really thought that much ahead because I have so many other things I'm trying to plan out for the podcast. But these uh, next two episodes are going to be essentially uh, almost two-parters in a way because I'm speaking to a screenwriter slash producer this week and I am uh, can't even talk today then I am talking to a director of the same project next week and this week I'm actually talking to Alan Trezza who is a former studio exec, now producer and screenwriter, who's penned Two really awesome horror comedies, one being Burying the Ex with Anton Yelchin and Alexander Daddario, and We Summon the Darkness with Alex as well, which is an amazing horror comedy you guys should really check out. Uh, We had a blast chatting. I loved hearing what his upbringing was like, how he got into the business, how he worked his way up, and is now really just enjoying writing movies and creating his own projects. So I feel like we could have talked for forever, and hopefully I'll bring him back to the show and we can uh, can have a longer chat, uh, maybe even get him and next week's guest together for a really fun live stream. So we are going to look forward to that. But for now, let's, uh, let's sit back, go ahead and grab your coffee, grab your tea, grab your kombucha, uh, water, I guess, if that's your thing. And let's sit down and talk with Alan
1: Treza. Uh, My name is Alan Treza. Um, I am first and foremost, I would say a screenwriter, uh, but I'm also a producer. Um, I've uh, actually produced uh, the two films that I've uh, had made so far to date um, and have also worked in the past as a production and development executive. For such people as uh, Miramax Films, uh, Drew Barrymore's Flower Films, and uh, Ridley and Tony Scott's *Scott Free*, so I kind of have a, a sense of how um, the ins and outs of the movie business work from all sides. I say it's uh, from both sides of the desk. You know, I've been. The executive, uh, you know, on the one side of the desk, uh, reading the scripts and uh, meeting with the writers and and other producers and directors. And I've also been, you know, the producer and the screenwriter on the other end of the desk, trying to get my movies produced and get attachments and get them going. So I kind of know what both sides are looking for. I think that gives me a little bit of an advantage. Oh, I'd say so.
0: <laughs> when you can talk uh-huh. shop
1: with producers
0: and execs, that's that's when you know, they're like, oh, he knows what he's talking about, and we'll just kind uh-huh. of go from there. But that I'm curious, man. What came first for you? Was it the development and production side, uh, like a love of film in that sense, or were you a writer first? What what came first there?
1: God, well, I would definitely say the writing came first because the movie that got me sort of off on this journey um, was a Clockwork Orange by Stanley Kubrick which I saw at age 11, uh, which I don't really uh, uh, advocate or, or condone. However, um, for me and where I was in my headspace, it really gave me sort of uh, a, 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 a passion and a love for daring films and daring, daring storytelling, uh, taking chances, doing things that maybe aren't exactly four quadrant or you know, family friendly, shall we say. However, if they're done with an intelligence and an artistry, um, that's sort of like what I was looking for uh, and, and Kubrick definitely delivered that. Um, so ever since then, I, I had been writing little short films that I would film uh, on weekends with friends. Um, and so I would say that the writing, directing, <laughs> producing part of me came first. And then uh, after graduating, From college, I said, well, no one's going to sort of, uh, you know, buy a a script of mine or just hire me to write a movie. So let me see what kind of job I can get. And uh, through various internships, um, I was able to get a job as an assistant at Miramax Films. Uh, The uh, late 90s, the heyday of, of Miramax when they were just sweeping the Oscars for Shakespeare in Love and also, you know, making box office hits like She's All That. Um, It was a pretty exciting time. Uh, You know, Jackie Brown had come out, uh, you know, Quentin was always in the office uh, and um, it was a super cool time, uh, a a great introductory gig for sure. Oh yeah.
0: I mean, it's, you are in a a workplace environment, but did you create relationships with filmmakers like Quentin, uh, you (laughs) know, in the long run, which is kind of a weird thing to say in this business, but did you find any, uh, professional relationships or friendships
1: that you still hang on to to this day uh yeah well i, I did i did speak to quentin on a number of occasions however uh n- we never exchanged cell phone numbers but you know <laughs> just just to let everyone know um you know uh what's what kind of a a long game that this is is you know one of the first filmmakers i had met uh i think my first week on the job was uh a young up and coming filmmaker named mark forster uh, who only had, I believe, a short film to his name, and uh, <laughs> to, to see him direct a Bond movie, and you know now he's directing Tom Hanks's new movie, it's it's pretty amazing, you know. So yeah, I mean uh, a, a bunch of people who are huge huge names now, but that that was, that's just the first to come to mind because I remember meeting him, um, you know, my first week, and uh, my boss at the time, Robbie Brenner who's an Oscar-nominated producer now and uh, runs the film division at Mattel. She's actually producing Barbie with Margot Robbie right now. She introduced me to Mark and said, this guy's going to be huge one day. And uh, like I said, all he had was a short film. And a few years later, perseverance and talent, um, he is where he is now. Oh,
0: my God. Mm -hmm. I mean, I have to rewind a little bit here. Are you
1: from Los Angeles? I am not. I'm a, about as far away as, as you can uh, get. I and mean, if you live in L.A., I'm, I'm from Long Island, New York.
0: Oh, wow. So I, this is one of my favorite things to ask. It's it's that journey to L.A. before these relationships are built, before you meet everybody where it's, you know, you're, you're running off of ambition and, and just a dream to to work in the industry. So what was your your journey like going to Los Angeles? Was that directly like right after college? Did you go to college in uh, California?
1: Uh, no, I, I went New York City, Fordham okay. University, uh, Fordham University right by uh, Lincoln Center, uh, which was fantastic because, you know, I was in the heart of the city. Um, I, uh, my first internship was actually at New Line Cinema, which was walking distance from uh, where the school was. Uh, plus they had an incredible uh, like Sony IMAX theater down the street. Uh, and then on the weekends, I remember um, going to a place called Kim's Video in uh, downtown, which um, the first video store I ever went to, where it was the categories were by director, not by genre. Uh, so if you wanted to see John Woo movies, you just go to the John Wu section. Uh, if you want to see Ringo Lam action, you know, films, you go to the Ringo Lam section, or you know, uh, Walter Hill, or. Gordon Parks Jr. if you want to check out some exploitation films. Um, it was pretty awesome. So I got a sort of an education uh, from everywhere from all around me uh, there. But yeah, to, to answer your question, uh, I did uh, buy a one way ticket, not too long after graduating. I uh, just had a list of names of contacts and uh, as I, I mentioned earlier. The first name on the list was Robbie Brenner. Uh, Robbie um, was an up and coming exec at Miramax. And just around the time that I moved out here, she had gotten promoted and was looking for an assistant. And um, thankfully, uh, I got an interview and then got the job not too far after. So I was very, very fortunate in that it was a very sort of fast, you know, kind of journey. um, And there was a lot of luck involved in it, I have to say.
0: Yeah, that seems like the golden ticket of opportunities, you know, and of course, as especially in the system position, you're working your ass off day and night. How long did you keep that uh,
1: position up? Oh, uh, I was there for, for quite a long time because Robbie was was really, really supportive of both me being an executive and being being a screenwriter. Mm-hmm. So um, I was uh, I was there for a number of years. And actually, that's one of the reasons why I sold my first script is um I wrote it and I gave it to Robbie to read. Uh, I had given her a few others in the past. Um, but I had written a, a, a film that I thought was pretty commercial and I gave it to her on a Friday. And then on a Monday, she says, uh, I think I want to buy this. And, um, and she ended up buying it. So I was able to sell a script while I was still an assistant. <laughs> um, and, uh, it's, it's a film called, it's a screenplay called baseline, uh, which I described as eight mile in the world of junior women's tennis. So it was sort of like an underdog story, you know, girl from the wrong side of the tracks is in this elite sort of, um, a tennis Academy. Uh, she's the underdog and, and, you know, she ends up sort of rising through the ranks and gets a wildcard ticket to, um, to Wimbledon, um, with a lot of edge, a lot of humor. Um, and, um, And I I also remember, uh, it was weird because, you know, I'd be answering phones for Robbie one minute and making scheduling meetings. And then they'd, I'd have to schedule in a way my own meeting for notes. (laughs) So I'd be like notes with me, Alan, uh, on my script baseline, uh, this Friday at 2 PM after lunch, you know, so it was kind of funny. Um, and it was also super cool because, uh, I uh, was sent on a research trip to the Nick Bollettieri Tennis Academy in Florida. Uh, so I was able to do that for four days. So as I said, she could not have been more supportive or really cooler with uh, with my endeavors as a screenwriter. Oh Wow. It,
0: how uh, was how the process sort of exporting yourself from the assistant position to becoming an executive? I mean, was that something that took a little bit longer after you sold that
1: script and you're working on that? Or was that more of a, I think you've outgrown your position here. We should move you uh, on. Well, at the time, Robbie um, was interested in independent producing and running her own company. And uh, she really fell in love with this one script, a script that I actually helped find. Um, and she basically said, she's like, Alan, if I do anything, it's going to be to produce this. And um, I'm not sure if I can work here and produce this movie at the same time. I'm just going to go and make this movie. Um, if you'd like to, you know, go with me, that's awesome. If you'd like to move on forward, if you want to become a creative executive, which is the next step, um, I'm, I'm happy to help in any way I can. Um, and it just so happened that um, a couple of weeks later, uh, a job opening at Flower Films, which is Drew Barrymore's company um, opened up and um, I interviewed for it. And I remember basically driving on my way home from the interview and they called and said that they wanted me. So, um I think Robbie might have also put in a good word for me too. So, that's how that happened. Wow, man. I I sorry, I just I I
0: love diving into these stories and and hearing how these ascensions go into uh especially the world of Hollywood. So, going from, you know, being assistant to working at Flower Films, I mean, what was your what was your end game with that? Were you looking at maybe going more of the, uh, the studio exec route or, you know, being a producer or, you know, where your eyes really led on, on writing at some point, and really just solely focusing on that.
1: Yeah. Well, I, I really did get seduced by the sort of the executive sort of route, you know, expense account, um, (laughs) getting to see the films early, going to cool screenings at CAA and uh, UTA and William Morris um which is just William Morris at the time, not William Morris endeavor, uh, you know, going to film festivals, that whole thing. But I think there was always something deep inside of me that um wanted to tell my own stories and make my own sort of films. So, um it was, I believe, towards the end of my tenure at at actually Scott- free, we're gonna fast forward a little bit, that I really started to kind of shift my focus to going back to screenwriting. Mm-hmm. But I had sort of, did the executive thing for a number of years, put the screenwriting uh, on hold, but then revisited it. Yeah. It seems
0: like you've made a really big marker on the independent horror comedy scene. Is that a genre that, uh, I mean, (laughs) having seen clockwork orange at 11 years old, I can't really like ask this question (laughs) without any stance whatsoever, but is that something you're more drawn to that particular genre or are you just a man of all genres do you have like an action film you want to write at some point are you going to go straight into like indie dramas
1: or is horror comedy just your jam man <laughs> it's funny um uh I, I i i i really grew up as i said watching films that are a little off kilter uh a little unique um and i i love genre films i i think they're some of the most effective uh, type of movies out there, you can feel suspense, you can feel terror, you can feel laughter. Um, and it's just, they're just a darn good time. So uh, yeah, I, I, I do love genre, um, uh, all types. Uh, so horror comedy, I also love just straight, pure horror. Um, I love, you know, just straight sort of crazy exploitation, uh, that whole thing. So Yeah. I mean, it's where, it's where the story sort of takes you. Um, I can't really control it. Um, You know, uh, my tennis uh, dramedy that I sold, that was just an idea that I got when I was on Long Island uh, one summer. Uh, I was home for a week and I drove by the old tennis academy where I used to play. And I said, wow, that's a world there. That story can really take place here. It's so intricate and the, the the different clicks and everything. And I remember all of this, and then the movie just kind of spilled out of me. You know, um, with burying, you know, it was people going through terrible, terrible breakups and thinking about how the best zombie films are the ones that use the zombie as a metaphor for something. That's why they're so effective. Night of the Living Dead is really about race relations, okay? It's really not the zombies outside that are the villains in that film. It's the people trying to get along with each other, right? Which then The Walking Dead takes to a whole new level. Um, 28 days later, 28 weeks later, that's the fear of disease and the fear of pandemics, um, which also uh, Walking Dead takes from. Uh, Dawn of the Dead, of course, consumerism, how we're all these blind sort of people just flocking to this huge mecca of... of, of clothes we don't need and and equipment we never use <laughs> that kind of thing <laughs> so I was thinking about that and I realized no one had ever used a zombie to represent a relationship that's dead but but not really yeah. <laughs> a relationship <laughs> that just won't die that person that you think is out of your life however they always kind of seem to show up and that's how that came about you know and <laughs> I think I told you through through email that
0: I had seen Burying the X when it came out, and mm-hmm. I had just gone through, you know, one of the worst breakups, probably the worst one of my entire life. Oh. And I just I loved the movie. It was because I, I caught on to that and was like, okay, this is this is so much fun. I love it. Was mm-hmm. there a personal correlation between uh, Anton's character and Burying the X and <laughs> <laughs> your life
1: experience? Um, yeah. Uh, you know, they say write what you know. And in that uh, occasion, I definitely was writing from uh, personal experience. Um, but, you know, not just in, in the relationship portion, but also the things that Anton dug, which were, you know, old school horror movies and that type of thing. And um, he also, uh, uh, you know, grew this uh, pretty nasty goatee, which I also had at the time. <laughs> So yeah, I think he definitely it was based on me, and then Anton met me, and uh, I think he he decided to base it on me even further. <laughs>
0: oh god! Now see, now I have to rewatch it, knowing that information, just see what I pick <laughs> up on. But no, yeah. oh, it's a it's a fantastically fun movie, and yeah, you know, I always wondered when you started writing that. Was that mm-hmm. something? Uh, I, I'm a writer as well, and some scripts I write just to just to write them, just to kind of get out of the way, get out of my head. Or was it something that
1: uh you know you're looking to to sell and, and produce at some point? Right. Um it actually started off as a short film. Oh believe it or not, started off as a 15-minute short. So I had gotten the idea. Um I had I it just had popped into my head about um dealing with relationships that, that just won't die or that just won't sort of let go. And then I thought about the zombie metaphor and then i <laughs> I mashed them in two. And then um, I said I I had wanted to make a short film at the time, you know, Um, and I thought, well, this can this can sort of wrap itself up in in 10 to 15 minutes. Um, So that's how that started. And um, I uh, got together with some friends that I had known, like I said, throughout my adventures uh, in Hollywood and um, got a fantastic cinematographer Um, who was recommended to me by someone uh, at Scott Free. um, And that cinematographer was able to get us the Panavision Genesis camera, which is like a million dollar camera that they shot Apocalypto on. Uh, So because of his relationships at Panavision, he basically checked that out on a Friday and returned it on a Monday. So it was a weekend, so it wasn't even missing. (laughs) So that's how we got that. He also got a crane one day. I mean, we were shooting in a cemetery um, and uh, the shot that's in the short film that is also in the uh, opening uh scene of the of the feature which is um, a crane shot uh starting off into trees and then descending quickly into an open grave uh we that shot actually existed in the short film because he called in some favors and before we knew it we had a crane <laughs> so um so that that started out as a short film and it started uh, the fantastic john francis daly from freaks and geeks oh my god um and uh now a very very successful screenwriter um wrote horrible bosses uh, he wrote uh, game night and now he's writing and directing i think dungeons and dragons right yeah. now um and also one of my childhood crushes daniel harris uh from the halloween franchise um so we made that short and uh, it played at a few festivals and then I decided to break it apart and try to write it as a feature, which was a little more challenging than I thought it would because a lot of things had to go, a lot of things had to change and shift. Um, but um, it took me about six months to kind of re-envision the story as a 90-minute film. And um, yeah, we did, we did try to sell it. Uh, of course, we went to all the, the sort of usual suspects uh, screen gems lion's gates um we had a a lot of interest from fox atomic at the time which was their genre division um but ultimately um it was a pass because zombies weren't popular um i know that's hard to believe but uh you know this was before uh this was before walking dead this was before warm bodies this is before zombie land this is before world war z so um People didn't believe in in zombie films, but I think because of the rising success and um, ultimately uh, World War Z, uh, which was a huge smash, I, I think we were able to then raise our money independently and get the movie made that way. And did you use your, your short film as a sort of proof of concept sizzle reel with this pitch? Well, what's funny is um, along the way, uh, we had one of my childhood heroes, Joe Dante, Attach himself as a director, and uh, Joe, who's an, a, a, an amazing person and a, and a very close friend, I still email with him all these, year la- all these years later. Um, uh, Joe refused to watch my short; he did not want to be influenced by it at all, um, which I, I totally respected. Um, and I don't think I don't think he he watched it until the film was like released. Uh, <laughs> but what was cool was to see how, like I said a few shots had mirrored what he, he had done. Uh, like I said, that crane shot, which, you know, I never told him anything about. Um, it's funny how, how uh, a lot of the shots in the short he had done without ever seeing the short.
0: Wow. Well, I mean, he's one of the most prolific directors of all time, right? <laughs> I mean, that had to have been a little surreal and a little nutty to, you know, be working alongside him
1: for, you know, your first produced feature film. <laughs> right right um but here's here's the thing about that is uh, as i mentioned i was also a producer on that movie so i really just couldn't kind of sit back and just be like oh my god they're saying my words or oh my god joe dante's directing my movie i also had to really be hopefully in charge of the movie and in charge of the production yeah. to make sure that we made our days to make sure that you know everyone was on time to make sure that we weren't over budget and over schedule and also Um, as I say, uh, ask the writer for rewrites uh, if things weren't working or if the characters, if the actors were bringing things to the characters that I had not seen, um, well, go into the script and bring more of that out, You know, which I did when I saw what incredible work Anton was doing, Ashley Green, and then also a very young Alexandra Daddario who had only done Percy Jackson at the time, and also Texas Chainsaw 3D. Um, She had not done those big movies with The Rock, like Baywatch or San Andreas, and and True Detective had not been released yet. So no one really knew too much about her. But I'll tell you, on day one, take one, everyone was like, wow. Uh, And our AD was like, that girl is a star. And um, she brought so much life and personality to it that I started sort of bringing out more, giving her more lines, giving her more scenes. So... Um, that's part of kind of producing is realizing, um, how the movie is going and then, you know, making it the best way it could be. The script is a fluid document. Um, you know, it, it invariably changes. So I, I, there was really no rest. Uh, uh, it was just, it was constantly working, but working on something that I think everyone really believed in and everyone was having a good time with.
0: It, it sounds like, it sounds like it was the, uh, you know, that energy you get from those college short films where you're up. Till you know, probably six in the morning. You sleep for an hour, and then you get back to to working again. Yeah. <laughs> Would you say your uh, your adrenaline
1: uh, was just completely depleted by the end of that shoot? <laughs> um, no, uh, no. <laughs> I, w- I was I was happy to to wake up at five every morning and go to bed at, at two um, because you know you're making a movie. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you're making a movie, and not only that, Joe runs such a great set. That it's just a joy to be there. You know, it's not one of these sort of um, nightmare scenarios where the director is a tyrant, no one's talking to each other, people are yelling, people are screaming, people are scared to, you know, uh, make their opinions heard. It was not like that at all. Um, and I think our script supervisor, who had done numerous films up until then and had just done Nightcrawler at the time, said, "This is the funnest set I've ever been on." Um, and a few other people have said that as well. So at the end of it, I was actually rather sad that it was over. I kind of didn't want it to end. And I remember, I remember saying to like our AD, you know, every every day that would pass, I would be like, 10 more days, nine more days, eight (laughs) more days. And she's like, Oh, don't, don't, don't say that. Don't, don't count down the days. I'm like, no, I'm not waiting for this to be over. I'm dreading for this to be over. So yeah.
0: Yeah, that's that's the worst part when you're having fun and you're you're doing something you, you love, right? And mm-hmm. you guys finished the movie, you yeah. you end up releasing it. What were you doing after the release of the film because we some of the darkness came out in 2020, right? So mm-hmm. uh, the the span of time in between were you just going through scripts left and right, producing obviously? But uh, where where was your head at after the release of the movie? Were you ready to make another one right away, or were yes. you looking to simmer? Oh, okay, gotcha.
1: Yes, uh, at at the we premiered we premiered at Venice, um, which was incredible. We premiered at the Venice Film Festival, um, and that was um, that's when I first started to have the idea of setting a movie in the '80s, um, but particularly <clears throat> during the Satanic Panic, which which I lived through because I was in a heavy metal band at the time. And I remember the paranoia and the fear and everything and the lies. I started to see a lot of parallels between what was going on then and still going on in terms of the media and lies in order to keep people ignorant and keep the powerful in power. Um, So that's when the idea started to happen. And then we had another premiere in Hollywood at the Cinematheque um, on Hollywood Boulevard, right across from Musso and Franks. And that's when I, that, that morning I had started to outline it. <clears throat> so even when the film was being released and everything, I was already working on We Summon the Darkness. Um, and then that's, that's what I was working on at the time because I had such a great time on Burying, as I mentioned, but at the same time, some of the things that were challenging on that movie, I wanted to avoid on my next one. Mm-hmm. So for example, Burying the X has multiple locations in, in, in and around Los Angeles that proved to be really, really, really challenging. Um, Yeah, you can write exterior Hollywood Forever Cemetery night. That's great. But actually going and getting that location and paying the money to get that location, that's a whole other thing. Um, Or writing um, uh, exterior, the New Beverly Cinema, uh, which is Quentin Tarantino's movie theater. Uh, Yeah, that's great on paper. But then you actually have to go and get that location. A few things. Um, We hired an incredible location manager named Greg Alpert, um, who works with Ivan Reitman, and used to work with Ivan Reitman. Now I think he works with his son. Um, So boom, he got him. I don't know how he did it on the budget that we had. Uh, And also, as you know, in in Bering, one of the end scenes is um, a screening at the Hollywood Forever Cemetery, which they do, especially during the summer times and during Halloween. I don't know how he did it, but he's like, he got that location in the cemetery. He got a projector up there and and yeah, it was amazing. Uh, <clears throat> for the New Beverly, um, how we got that is Joe called up Quentin. And he said, Quentin, I'm, I'm making a movie. It's a zombie picture. Um, there's a scene that takes place at the New Bev. Um, and Quentin basically said, whatever you need, no charge. Um, so, we were shoot, we shot at the new Bev for one, one day, uh, free of charge. Um, but as I said, you know, getting there was, was a bit of a challenge. Um, so for my next one, I said, okay, my next one's going to be in a non-specific area and mainly one location, which is a house. Um, and, uh, you know, no, not really big on effects. You know, we don't have to do zombie effects every morning for three hours, um, but just really sort of kind of bare bones uh, in terms of the production, but hopefully uh, big in terms of thematics and story and character. So I kind of took the lessons that I had learned from Bering and then started to craft We Summon the Darkness because of those lessons.
0: And it pays off in spades
1: <laughs> having it be
0: in, in a, you know, very limited nondescript uh, locations. You know, you have a gas station, you have a venue, and then you have a house and right. it, it's, and yeah, mm-hmm. it, yeah, 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 in the car too. It's um, I, I think those are one of my favorite types of films to write. Those who have, for the most part, a singular location, but mm-hmm. sometimes I get a little lost in, you know, drafting the third or fourth version of that script. Because I'm, I feel like I need to add more. So, how long did it take for you to, you know, from start to finish, or I guess from start to the final draft? Mm-hmm. Finish. We summon the darkness.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, one of the, it was one of the faster ones. Um, it was about four to six weeks. Uh, however, um, working with producers, working with directors. Etc. Etc. you know, you're constantly working on it, you know, but so for the first draft, I would say between four and six weeks, but the finished film, I don't know, all the different drafts, all the tweaks, all the little things that actors would bring, producers would suggest Mark Myers, our incredible director would, would ask me to do, you know, I can't kind of um, put all those little drafts together and put a time period on them. Yeah. But just, just to say that, um, as I said, it, I had been thinking about it for quite a while, um, you know, during Venice and, and during the Hollywood premiere. Um, so that when I finally sat down to write it, I basically had all the beats all together. Um, so I had a very clear picture of what the movie was. So the writing took pretty quickly. That's yeah. just my process. I I I can't um, start with a blank page, right? Fade in and just go straight to page ninety or straight to page one twenty. I have to see the whole movie, I have to know the whole entire movie. And then writing the script, now for me, uh, a first draft takes, like I said, four to six weeks. But that could could entail months and months of planning. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And
0: personally, I love, uh, you know, I'll listen to the same playlist or the same songs over and over when I'm writing something. Uh, Anything that gave me that inception, that idea, Do you do the same thing while you're writing? Do you need uh, music to write? Or are you somebody who can go out in nature? Or do you need complete and utter
1: fluorescent silence to write? Uh, Complete and utter silence. Wow. I can't do it any other way. Yeah. Complete and utter silence, which is one of the reasons I write at five in the morning, you know, five to seven, five to eight. And then again, maybe 11 until one when I'm really in, in the zone. Oh my God, I love that. I,
0: I will try that again, but in the few times I have, it's, uh, it's not gone well. The ADD starts kicking in a little little high. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But you mentioned Alexandra previously. Yeah. I've been a fan of her since, I believe it was uh, Malevolence. It was an indie horror that she was in oh, right. yeah, I remember years that one, yeah. ago. Yeah, uh-huh. and uh, I'm curious, did you write We Summon the Darkness for her to
1: lead? Um, you know, actually I did. <laughs> um, I've, I've written a few things for her, believe it or not. <laughs> um, because, uh, well, she's she's a friend. Uh, we love working together. Um, and I just love to see um, different aspects of her ability come out. Um, and watching the films that, that she had been doing at the time, um, I said, wow, you know, they're kind of really limiting her, her talent. They're really limiting her range as an actress. So I know what she's capable of doing. So let me write this vehicle for her, so that the public can see what I already know and be really wowed by. So with We Summon the Darkness, you know, I, I want—I actually told her I'm like I kind of wrote three different roles for you. You know, there's—and I don't want to spoil too much, but yeah. you know, there's kind of three different characters that she affects throughout the movie. You know, there's the character at the beginning that we think we know. There's the character that's revealed uh, midway through and then there's a, a rather comical scene where a sheriff shows up uh halfway through um some pretty demonic dealings and she has to affect this kind of very 80s valley girl um kind of uh you know ditz mentality so <laughs> i'm like i wrote you three roles here um so yeah i i definitely i definitely always envisioned her for that role because i i knew i knew the public had known her in some capacity and the same thing with Johnny Knoxville, you know, it's, it's called stunt casting in the business where you cast someone who's so well-known for portraying a particular role and then they do something completely different. So since this movie, we saw in the darkness deals with perception versus reality and um, things that we think we know to be true. I really wanted to cast against type as much as I could. Uh, and what about the uh, the rest? I mean, the whole cast in that film, they're they all terrific. And
0: mm-hmm. especially, I mean, Alexandra scared the living hell out of me watching <laughs> it, because uh, she's just so great. But uh, everyone else is just so incredibly talented. Do you have them in oh. mind as well? Or was that just one of those, you know, longer casting processes to find that right person?
1: There there was really no way that, that I could have envisioned all, all those people. Um, I really kind of except for Alexandra on on certain occasions, um, I try not to write for a particular character or a particular actor, I should say. Um, But that was just um, looking and having people read. And again, our incredible producers, um, reaching out to people that they knew. Um, So Kian Johnson, uh, the main boy character, uh, plays the drummer, was a friend of the producers. Um, who had just done Battle Angel, Alita, Battle Angel, um, and was definitely on the rise. And he was just going to do this Roland Emmerich film called um, Midway. Uh, so he's definitely on the rise. And uh, then they had, I think Mar- Mark also played a hand in casting some of the other roles, but it was really our producers really stepping up and and reaching out to their, their sort of list of actors and their, their people that they knew um austin swift i believe also was a friend of one of the producers um taylor swift's brother and an incredible person and an incredible actor um i'd love to work with him again he was fantastic um maddie Hassan came because uh, another actress had dropped out um she had booked a cw series a week before shooting (laughs) um so this other actress had said you know see ya Um, and, uh, UTA, I believe, who represents Alexandra Daddario said, well, what about, what about this girl, Maddie Hassan? And, uh, I remember, you know, I saw an audition tape and I said, yeah, cool. Yeah. She, she'll definitely do it. She'll definitely do it. But then, whoa, uh, again, (laughs) like with Alexandra, Maddie's the blonde one who plays Val. Wow. Uh, yeah, I think after her first take, uh, I turned to Mark and I said, we got a live one here. Um, (laughs) And again, you know, her role just expanded and expanded. Um, And uh, I was asking Mark, I was like, man, so how how do you direct someone who is so spontaneous and so dangerous? And he goes Oh, with Maddie, you just kind of open up her cage and let her loose, (laughs) which is funny because if you do meet Maddie, she's, very put together, very eloquent, very composed, um, you know, always like beautifully dressed. Uh, but with that role, she just became someone else completely. Uh,
0: yeah, it it shows it shows quite a bit. If listeners, if you haven't seen We Some of the Darkness, get your shit together and check it out. Cause it's <laughs> one of the better horror comedies you'll you'll check out. And it's uh yeah, it's fun seeing the final product now knowing, you know, the the background behind it. And you know, you you did that, yeah, it was released in 2020. And I believe you have a few things in development from what I've read, uh, the internet, you know, is <laughs> not always uh, full of truth. But what, uh, what, what are you up to next after, you know, especially a, a film like that? Do you have anything yeah. uh, closer into production
1: now that things are kind of leveling up COVID wise? Yeah. Oh, no, most definitely, most definitely. Uh, yeah, uh, lockdown was a very fertile period for me. Um, I wrote Two specs and I think two TV series, uh, uh, all or all of which have really, really amazing attachments to um, both directors and producers. Um, nothing I can mention just yet, but let's just say uh, they're also in the genre space, um, a little bit more serious. Um, one is uh, I, I call it a Latinx horror film, um, so it's it's a horror film steeped very uh, deeply in Uh, the Mexican culture, um, and what it's like to be an immigrant here um, and how our country uh, likes to think of uh, it as being a place that welcomes immigration, but in the end really welcomes assimilation Mm -hmm. and how people have to sort of change their names, change their looks, change their heritage in order to ascend uh, and, and become successes and what that does to a person's identity. Um, it's sort of a very Polanski-esque type of, of horror thriller, but, you know, with a, a, a strong Mexican female lead. Um, and it's just a, 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 I call it a nightmare. Um, it's just a, a nightmare of somebody realizing that they have uh, abandoned their identity and their hi- heritage to attain heights that are, are really, in the end, rather vapid. Um, and that nightmare scenario and that haunting scenario. Um and then, uh, yeah, the other is a series, which also a genre, but with a little bit more of a sci-fi supernatural bent. Um, and more and more things coming.
0: Wow. so you you must be working tirelessly just to I could see the passion on your face as we're we're talking. Okay. And, just, uh, you... and the bags <laughs> under my eyes, too. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I've overblown the lighting in my office so you can't see the bags under my eyes. Uh, uh, <laughs> I have to get one
1: of those o- ring lights. Oh, help myself yeah. out here <laughs> I mean
0: honestly I man, I'll tell you I have one of those uh, gooseneck lamps that I'm just propping on my oh, microphone there you stand go. Yeah, I see it mm-hmm. boom save so much money <laughs> but uh you know you, you are and have been working so hard you know throughout your career I am curious to hear what helps you decompress like what do you like to do outside of writing and producing and directing mm-hmm. is there anything that
1: kind of helps you relax and let go of the day mm-hmm. um yeah you know walks are really really nice um i i have a family an amazing beautiful family um, that love me and i love them so every time i sort of close the laptop i kind of go to them and um i forget about everything and they are now the focus of my attention you know and because of that i'm able to decompress you know or we always try to take a nightly walk together um that really does help me decompress for sure uh, cause it's as far away as you can get from the worlds that I inhabit <laughs> <laughs> on, on a daily basis. Um, you know, uh, my, my children who are, you know, all above the, uh, all below the age of eight, um, <laughs> although, um, they wonder what daddy does and they wonder what the posters are in his office that you can see behind me. I say, um, don't worry about that just yet. <laughs> There's a few years before you learn about that, um, that's that's really how I kind of decompress. I kind of, it's as like I said, it's as far away from the worlds that I inhabit as as you can imagine, and and therefore it kind of helps to clear my head a little bit. It, it helps when you're not the center of your own universe. It helps when what you're doing really isn't life or death, right? Because as <laughs> yeah. writers, we tend to sort of go into our own worlds, and that's all that matters, and 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 that's what the world revolves around. And that's that's actually not true. So that's what keeps me grounded. Wow.
0: No, no, I I love that. I um, you know, I've been with the the same person for the last two and a half years, and those nightly walks have really helped out so much. You know, I'm an actor as well, so when I'm not worried about the the callback or if my right. my script went somewhere, they like you said they they keep you grounded. So that's beautiful to hear, man. That you yeah. know, a lot of people just say, oh yeah, you know, I play pickleball. Okay. <laughs> like, no judgment on pickleball but but what else do you have uh yeah. no that's 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 amazing man so i'm guessing you have not and have no plans to show them a clockwork orange in the next uh. <laughs> three
1: to four years uh no no they're wild <laughs> enough as it is i yeah I'll, I'll i'll judge when when a good time is but yeah. you know we'll see <laughs> <laughs> no time soon Yeah. (laughs) Well, uh, I'll ask my
0: my last, you know, couple of questions here, one of which being uh, if you have a party story that you could share with the the listeners. So on this show, a party story for us is essentially a story that you would share at a party. So something that maybe was really impactful to you, something that, uh, you know, experience you can never forget uh, that you just remember most of the pivotal moments of that you would share with your friends, whether it's, you know, talking to Quentin Tarantino or working with Joe Dante or, you know, your friendship
1: with, with Alexander, is there something you could share with our listeners? Yeah, sure. Um, This is a story I I like to tell um, because there's a a numerous lessons in in this, Um, but uh, it it was during the making of *Burying the X. It was um, during pre-production, which is also, which is always the most stressful time, especially for an independent production where you have your full budget one minute and then the next minute it's completely slashed or you have an actor and then a minute later, you know they're signed on to two seasons uh, for a CW show or for a Netflix show. So pre-production is always for me the most stressful. I think shooting, hopefully if you have a, a great director and a good crew can be very joyful and could be very fun. Um, editing, hopefully, if everyone did their job during shooting um, and the script is what it should have been, um, that should go relatively smoothly. But pre, there's a lot of questions. There's a lot of fluidity in, in pre-production. Um, so it's always, in, in my opinion, the, the most stressful time. So we were in pre-production on, on Burying the X and we were trying to cast up the movie Meanwhile, the budget was sort of wavering. Um, there were a lot of ifs and there was a lot of, you know, questions. Are, are we making a movie or we're we not making a movie? I don't know. Show up tomorrow. We'll find out. Um, So uh, it was my birthday, I remember, and uh, probably one of the worst birthdays of my life. Um, You'd think it'd be the best birthday of my life, right? You're in pre-production on your movie that you wrote, that you're producing, that has a a legendary director. You know, you saw his, you saw the howling uh, when you were 12 and it blew your mind. And then you saw Gremlins and then you saw Space, and all this stuff. And now you're, this guy's a friend and now he's making your movie. Like you think it'd be the worst, you think it'd be the best birthday, but it was really the worst because at the time uh, everything was very up in the air and it looked like this thing that was within my reach was now crumbling before my eyes. So, you know, is is it better to watch a dream die than to never have had it? I don't know. Sometimes that's actually a a line from Rush, uh, one of my favorite (laughs) bands. Is it sadder to watch something die than to never have known it? Uh, Probably sadder to watch something die than never to have known it. So the movie's crumbling before my very eyes, and it's my birthday. Um, People were not really getting along. Uh, There was a lot of stress, a lot of anxiety. And I was driving home from the production office and um, probably about nine o'clock at night. And it was like, you know, started at 8 AM, driving home on my birthday from downtown LA. And uh, I got a call and um, an actor had been cast Uh, that was completely against type that was completely not who I had envisioned Um, and I kind of lost it a little bit and um, the producer that had cast that actor uh, was unbeknownst to me in the room and I was on speakerphone so everything I was saying was being heard by everybody so That made it even worse. (laughs) So could you imagine things are already bad. It's your birthday. Uh, You sort of tell the person on the line every reason why that actor should not be cast and how did this come to be and how did this happen and who casted this actor only to have everybody in the production office basically hear my rant, right? Other people get on the phone. Alan, you know, you should just be grateful, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The good news is I said, you know what? We're going to make this work. I apologize. Uh, I'll rewrite the script and we're going to make this work. And next day came in with new pages. We made it work and uh, the rest is history. So just when you think, you know, you're at your lowest point, you really sort of have to find a way to turn it all around and, and make it work. And as I said, you know, the film is, had takes on a life of its own. Um, people come on board that you never expected. And most of the time, in my opinion, that that's, those have been the best sort of discoveries. Um, and uh, yeah, that, that's a story that I like to tell a lot. <laughs> oh my God. i sorry. I was, I was getting like the,
0: those crazy, like cold sweats oh, <laughs> thinking yeah, about yeah, that because, yeah, yeah. That's the worst thing. Yeah. Wow. Uh, I'm glad. (laughs) If you could
1: imagine, you know, saying, uh, you know, things, uh, blowing your top, going into a rant. That's that's bad enough as it is. But then to have everybody basically hear it in the office because you're on speaker and you were not aware. I should have been made aware that I was on speaker first and foremost. That's like rule number one. Hey, Alan, you're on speakerphone with blank, blank and blank. I just want to let you know that didn't happen. <laughs> oh, what the hell? Yeah. That, that's, that's, courtesy that. one <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Oh, but, but we, but as I said, you know, we all made it work, you know, we're professionals at the end of the day, the movie's what matters. We moved on from it. We made it work. And I love the cast in that movie. The cast yeah. in that movie is fantastic. I think they're one of the reasons why the movie works so well. And keep in mind, there was no rehearsal period for Bering. There was no rehearsal period for We Summon the Darkness. Um, Yeah. So these people had to go basically on day one and act as if they had known each other for months or years. And with We Summon the Darkness, same thing. These people are supposed to be in a band, you know, and they were just meeting like the night before. And with Alexandra and Maddie and Amy, they're the friends too. Same thing. But You know, we got really blessed with amazing actors uh, who knew their lines, who were prepared every single day, um, who weren't getting into trouble um, when the cameras were turned off or after hours or anything like that. Really amazing. Um, Our AD on We Summon the Darkness, I think after our first or second week of shooting, um, we sort of had a a meeting in the production office to go over where where we were, uh, the next week's work, et cetera, et cetera. And um, our assistant director said, Um, It's probably one of the best compliments. He said, um, I don't know what kind of like voodoo or black magic you guys are doing here, but I've worked on 40 productions. This is the only production with a young, attractive cast where they show up on time, they know their lines, and they're not sleeping with each other. (laughs) So I don't know what you guys are doing, but keep on doing it because this is amazing, you know? Oh my God. (laughs) <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah it's, it's like you know I, no- I knock on their door i yeah. say it's time they're ready they're dressed they can know their lines they're out boom you yell cut they go back to their trailers they study their lines for the next scene they're not drinking they're not doing drugs they're not sleeping with each other i don't know what you guys are doing but <laughs> keep on doing it you know what man from what i've noticed especially
0: in even the smaller regions if you are somebody who's doing the opposite of that. That, yeah. that type of actor is gone like they yeah. they're not they're not showcased anymore that's so right. it just i that gives me hope that we are getting to a better place <laughs> you know nothing's worse than saying well where's our lead i don't know i think they uh shit we can't find them anywhere <laughs> <laughs> right <So laughs> that's fun. the worst well this mm-hmm. uh this next question actually goes well with that it's uh if you have any advice for arts workers who are starting right now maybe have been in it for a while whether mm-hmm. they are you know uh potential producers Writers, directors, even actors. Do you have any advice you could bestow upon our listeners?
1: Uh, For producers, um, it's all about expanding your network, um, expanding your contacts, your Rolodex, (laughs) to use the old-fashioned term. But you can never know enough people. You can never know enough people. You can never have enough friends because you'll never know when a friend might lead to another friend who might know a cinematographer or someone that you just met in two years could be a producer, or could be an agent, or could be a manager. Okay, so you can never know or meet enough people, especially if you're out here, trying to make it trying to get a career. Um, Always spend, I mean, some of the people that I, I think are the most successful today that I know, I remember having lunch with them early, early on and saying to me at the end of the lunch, it was so great meeting you, Alan if you could maybe name three or four people that I could meet, would you give me their names? And now those people are agents right now. Okay. Five years ago, they were just having lunch. They were probably in between jobs or maybe looking to make a career change. They had to have lunch with me. They got four new names from me. From those four new names, they got another four, et cetera, et cetera. So it's those people who are constantly expanding their list of contacts so that when it does come time to make the movie, you can call upon this person to be your DP and that DP might know someone at Panavision. who can get you the Genesis, et cetera, et cetera. So, so for producers, you can never meet enough people also, you know, be passionate, be authentic. Okay. It comes across in your voice. I think you mentioned that earlier on, (laughs) um, we can spot bullshitters a mile away. Come at us with the truth. Hey, you don't know me. I just moved out here. I love movies. Um, you got 10, 15 minutes to get on a Zoom? Just want to pick your brain for a sec. Okay, not, okay, look, hey, man, um, I, I, I wrote five movies. Uh, they're, they're amazing. People have told me how incredible they are. CAA is chasing me. And uh, yeah, I've got, I've got, uh, I've got uh, Seth Rogen, uh, you know, trying to get on, uh, trying to get attached. Well, no, that's not going to work. Okay. <laughs> Um, And then for, for writers, the most important thing, as I said, is finding that idea that you absolutely fall in love with, okay? You have to be honest with yourself. Do I really, truly love this idea? Is this the type of movie that I would wait in line for to see? That's the movie you should write. You shouldn't be writing the movie that you think is going to sell. That's the truth. Again, authenticity comes through. It comes through in your voice. And it comes through in your writing. If you're writing a movie that doesn't matter if zombies are cool, you think they're cool and you've got a take on them that people haven't done before and you're dying to see this movie, that's going to really come through in your writing. If you are writing a movie because you think Tom Cruise is going to do this movie in space and you're going to beat him to it, so you're going to write this thing in four weeks about Uh, a moon landing and a war that's taking place on the moon just because you think it's going to sell that's going to bomb that's not going to happen so again really the ones I've written several several screenplays I've sold several screenplays the two that I've gotten made so far and the ones that are also are 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 uh, next up are the ones again that I really just wanted to see myself those were the ones that ended up getting made the other ones the studio ones those are in development somewhere because they've already got the next five years of big budget films lined up those are mainly based on on ip intellectual property like comic books or video games so the original ideas are a little bit more hard to come by these days Um, so just write the movie that you want to see be really honest with yourself as i say write writing a film it's it's like falling in love okay like It takes a long time to find that idea that you love. And it's not going to be great all the time. There's going to be great days and there's going to be horrible days. There's going to be days where you want to walk away from the damn thing and divorce it. But if you truly love that idea, you're going to stick with it. It's going to get you up at 5 a.m. It's going to keep you up till 2 a.m. And like I said, it's really like a relationship. But the hardest part is finding that thing that you really fall head over heels in love with. And sometimes that takes months, you know. It's you much, I much rather spend months trying to find an idea that I love than spend months chasing an idea that I just kind of like.
0: Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. There's so much to pick apart from there. I love it, man. Seriously. <laughs> no, it's, I, I absolutely love it. I, I can relate to every single piece. Uh, no, Because well, I,
1: like I said, I, I've been through it so many times before and yeah. I try to learn a lesson with each and every script because um, then otherwise, you know, what comes of it and uh that's really the formula that that works for me. Yeah. Yeah. And it I mean, hey, look where you
0: are now and look at where you're going. <laughs> you're doing great, nice. man. I Thank love you. it. Nice. So uh one of the last things is you know you promoted uh some things you have coming up uh, that we can't necessarily talk too much about yet. But uh, is there anything else I can promote with your episode, whether it's you know uh, uh a business, an organization, a charity, anything else that you uh, you really
1: care about that I could share? Um You know, uh, well, We Summon the Darkness is still on Netflix. Uh, Two years later, uh, *Bearing the X is on Amazon and iTunes. Um, And um, other than that, watch more movies. Watch movies that you don't particularly think you'll love because you might be surprised.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's so true, dude. Uh, I, okay, I, I have to ask everybody because not everybody has seen it. But my version of ending this recording is through a, what we call an awkward goodbye. So, have you ever okay. seen you've seen Wayne's World, right? Uh huh. Yeah. Okay. So, I'm gonna do the cameraman silent countdown: mm-hmm. three, two, one. And when I point to you, just give me your best awkward goodbye, and we will we'll end the recording there. But I want to say first and foremost again, thank you so much for for your time, man. This was so mm-hmm. much fun. I, I'm actually talking to Mark here. I think this Friday. Uh,
1: no way yes oh,
0: cool. <laughs> i'll make sure i, I give him a, a virtual high five for you but yeah <laughs> seriously no thank way. you for your time man It's <laughs> it's been great uh cool. so without any more delay are you ready for the awkward goodbye sure yes
1: all right man here we go in so yeah um i uh, uh bye i guess i mean um yeah 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 bye is good bye is good for now Yeah. Bye-bye. I think we'll just work just fine right now. Bye-bye.